Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insight, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast, and today your host is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Dr. Neil Costigan, who brings over 25 years of effective entrepreneurial and technical leadership in venture-backed startups and global technology corporations throughout the EU and US. But before BehaviorSec, he built his career in software development, executive leadership and entrepreneurship. The company's behavioral biometrics platform is widely deployed across global 2000 companies for its proven ability to dramatically reduce account fraud and data theft. Founded in 2008 out of groundbreaking academic research, BehaviorSec technology allows companies to continuously verify digital identities with superior precision in real time. Hope you enjoy. Neil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us today. No, thank you, and thanks for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and um, and where were you educated, that sort of thing? Um, well, there's an easy and a long answer to that one. Uh, I grew up in Southern Ireland, uh, about an hour outside Dublin. Uh, and when I grew up, it was a lovely provincial town, uh, kind of country town. Um, but nowadays, it's it's kind of on the edges of Dublin. It's kind of been consumed. It's kind of commuter town. So, you know, in my mind, when I go home, it's to Dublin. Uh, but actually, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in the countryside. Uh, educated in a in a school there with the Christian Brothers. But I went on to university in Dublin in '85 and uh, studied computer applications. First, first, actually, I studied mathematics, but then computer applications. But I returned to university a couple of times. So I went back um, after quite a few years in industry uh, and did a master's and then finally a PhD. So I've uh, three different attempts at, uh, at university, uh, all in the same university, Dublin City University in uh, the north of, uh, north of Dublin City. So what made you go back to university? Um, I... I pursued a career I'd, I'd uh, you know I was about 10 years or so in industry and I'd, I'd traveled quite a bit and uh, I think there was a feeling I hadn't given university the proper attention it deserves I wouldn't have been very serious about it the, the first time around um, was going to go back and do an MBA it got to a point in a career and, and one of the companies I worked in the HR department said to me kind of that your career development you know, you'd probably you'd probably need an MBA to go higher in this organization, which is a large French company that, you know, would have that as part of the management thing. And and, and I was going to do that. And at the last minute, I, I, I had a double take and realized I'm actually an engineer and my passion would be there. Uh, and while my wife went off and did the MBA uh, and it was a horrendous amount of work and very, very hard. And she, she really totally enjoyed it and has had a great career on the back of it. But uh, I, it was more suited for me to be, a, a, you know, a computer scientist. And, and, and I went back into that. And I just worked under a great um, supervisor who uh, was very inspiring. And, and kind of the master's turned into a PhD. 
and had you know five great years of uh, of of really enjoying it. Um, there's one of these things, you know, when you go to work every day and there's, you know, seven hours of frustration and meetings and projects and all sorts of things and work and one hour of, 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 of you know, really enjoyable things. Uh, when you're doing a PhD, it's still the way around. You know, you have you're following your nose, you're working on things you like to do. Um, if you're passionate about your topic and if you have any natural skill at it or whatever, it's, it's actually quite a joy. So, um, yeah, I really enjoy the PhD and it was um uh, you know, in hindsight, it was an odd time to do it, but uh, I'd highly recommend it if anybody gets the chance. Well, I was just about to ask you that because people often ask me, you know, for my career development, should I go back and do a degree in a master's or whatever it is? And they could be expensive and time consuming. Do, do you feel it's benefited your career having done it? Yeah, um, you know, different people have different opinions on it. Um there's an odd one, but, you know, you kind of the higher you study kind of, you know, people say doors open for you or opportunities appear. Uh, I actually feel opportunities appear that I didn't even know were there. Um, and so the quality of work and the kind of environment and, and how you're taken um, afterwards kind of is different. So, you know, if one was purely adding up the, 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 the pounds and cents uh, you know, you'd, you'd be, you'd hard, you'd, it may be hard to justify the ROI of it all, but um, but uh, but I definitely think for your career and and, and just making work not work, uh, it's been great. Good. Now the current company um, is Behaviour Sex. So how did you come up with the idea? Well, well, I didn't for one thing. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I as I was doing that PhD. I, um, you know, as part part of studying for a PhD in Ireland, uh, you're kind of encouraged to do a, a year somewhere else in another university and generally abroad, just part of the, the kind of good governance or best practices. Uh, it is good to spend time in another research facility or with others. And I was doing that in Sweden. And uh, when I was there and I, you know, as I'd previously done startup stuff and I'd previously uh, kind of been involved in intake and innovation uh, to, you know, commercializing and to bring it to market. Um, a mutual friend of mine and the founders, uh, Olaf and Peter, uh, you know, set up a meeting and said, you know, you, these guys have an idea and they want to know, you know, go about commercializing it. Maybe you could give them some advice. Um, and so I met them at the university when the guys had come up with the idea as part of an undergraduate project um and you know realized that it got legs presented it to the innovations group at the university uh, where Olaf was at the time and kind of combined forces and 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 went off on that classic path of getting some uh, support from the university joining the the kind of innovation path incubation getting some seed funding applying for a patent uh, to protect it uh, and going off trying to you know find a um, product market fit and that's where I came in. You know, I, I joined them around then. I was giving them advice on, on, on how that technology would be best placed in the marketplace um, and in parallel helping them raise funding and stuff. And it just became a natural thing as I came out of the PhD to, to join up with them. And, and, you know, we've been at it now in nearly 10 years. Um, uh, but that, that the seeds of it in were in a university in Luleå in the far north of Sweden, um, where I'm sitting now at the moment, actually. Uh, and where we have our R&D center and, you know, we've 20 odd people in the lab there uh, making the magic, um, you know, from that idea, from that seed. Nice. So where is the company at today? Sort of what is it what is it doing and, and who is it serving for people that don't know? 
Well, so what we do, uh, just to stand back on that one, uh, the idea that they came to me with, and actually that I, I, I hadn't quite realized how good it was back then, uh, and, and it's to Olaf and Peter's credit that they really forced through the idea uh, had, had, had an industry fit. Um, we verify a person is by how they interact with their device. So if you think about how they type and swipe, um, we're watching the speed as you move across the keyboard, how much pressure you're putting on the screen, how much of your finger would be resting on a key, um, how you hold the phone, you know, kind of uh, the rhythm of how you're typing and kind of the depth of touch you have on the, on the phone uh, or, you know, how you move your mouse or how you browse around a browser. And that's the idea. Uh, and we went to market, you know, like any great strategy, we tried a hundred things. And of course, we looked upon one and all of a sudden that became a brilliant strategy. But basically, the early adopters for this type of technology tend to be the financial institutions uh, and or the defense sector, uh, you know, who just have those problems and have some money to uh, to, to back it, you know. And, and um, it was initial successes with the banks in the Nordics uh, where they felt that this solution could help them uh, in their consumer or customer facing applications and, and banking platforms and mobile payments, uh, adding additional layer of security, removing a lot of friction uh, and barriers to, to using the apps. You know, people have invested a lot in digital transformation, hadn't quite got the uptake in, in usage. Doing some investigation about that, it, it, it was that people were quite afraid of the security and found it quite complex to use. The idea that we could take enterprise security and just lift it out of the enterprise and give it to consumers uh, and then use it on a mobile platform uh, didn't quite play out in practice. And so, you know, that's that's the main driver. And we're there to help them detect account takeover, prevent fraud, uh, detect new account fraud. We can, with you know these behavioral algorithms we have, um, identify if it's malware or bots, you know, scripted attacks, and then for compliance reasons, the the, the institutions are under um, uh, things like PSD two is a big driver for for changes in authentication. Know your consumer or know your customer. Know customer due diligence are all things the banks have to do uh, for the regulatory authorities, and technologies like ours are approved uh, as, as part of that process. So we've been mainly directly selling to the banks. We're out to a lot of the big logos um, across Scandinavia, Benelux, Germany, Switzerland, France, uh, and further afield. And over the last few years, we've, we, we relocated uh, the headquarters to San Francisco, and we've been kind of taking our successes in Europe and applying them to North America and, and are, are around about the same uh, amount of users in deployment. We're in the, you know, we're north of 100 million users using the technology. Uh, so the company is about 40 people, half of them in, in Europe and half of them in, in, in the US, uh, roughly. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of where we've got to. Well, I think that's a, a brilliant journey. I mean, 100 million users is a, a massive number. Um, and being in California, do you think that's the place you need to be as a as a tech company? Um, yes and no. Um, you know the 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 ability to quickly get to market. You know, California, San Francisco, the Bay Area in particular, uh, is exceptionally good at quickly getting kind of product market fit. And um, and and also, we we have a very sophisticated tech product, and you know, um, 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 
exceptionally large, uh, uh, nearly over-engineered uh, platform that people are using with all sorts of inputs and signals and everything. And one of the things that's been very good about California is rationalizing that and getting it best described and best fit for purpose for you know handing over to our, 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 our customers. And so there's a, there's great product marketing, uh, great product management, a uh, great partnership and, um, uh, you know, indirect channels. Uh, there's one thing for a small company like ours to go off and directly sell to some of the biggest banking logos, but there's certain limits to how far that will go. Uh, you need partnerships for credibility. You need partnerships for giving you access to next vertical. You need partnerships to get you into geographies that you're just not going to serve. Um, and California is kind of the hub of all that. So, you know, we've recently announced partnerships with the likes of Forge Rock and Ping. Uh, they're all operated in and around Silicon Valley. And it's the fact that we're able to meet them, demonstrate their technology, um, get them to spend the time uh, has a lot to do with the fact that we're sitting in the Bay Area rather than, you know, very far away. Um, that said, I mean, it's not the only place with good ideas and, and great people. Um, you know, we've got half our team. It's on the East Coast as well. Uh, a lot more direct facing stuff, particularly in fintech, is in the kind of New York, Washington area. And, uh, you know, that's that's where our successes are as well. So, you know, San Francisco is a bit of a mecca for tech companies and particularly at the, you know, raising financing and, and, and at that stage where we're, we need partnerships. Um, but, you know, we've, we've got to be everywhere. And, you know, the Internet's a great um, borderless world where, you know, we're able to offer self-service services, a lot of our support and, and uh, developer portals, how we integrate and all that stuff uh, isn't done in San Francisco or, or, or doesn't need to be either. Now, you've, you've raised funding through this journey. So how um, or what advice would you give to other companies that are thinking about doing the same thing? Um, we were growing semi-organically for a while and I was meeting our UK investors every you know, every six months or so, keeping them abreast of what we we're up to, kind of setting out what we were going to do and reminding them what we'd done. And, you know, when you follow up six months later, you're doing the same thing. And all of a sudden they're kind of getting time to digest, you know, that you're able to execute and, and get a better understanding of your tech. So first off, that process of, you know, there's no in the real world, there's no real apprentice moment. You don't just get up on stage, pitch, and as you get off stage, somebody hands you a check. You know, you're, you are involved in relationship building. You're involved uh, with somebody you're going to work with for quite a while. You'd all like to like each other. You'd all get to know each other before these kind of uh, transactions happen. So, you know, we were we were showing off the tech and I was saying, hey, we're nearly ready. I'll be back to you soon. You know, we've hey, we've got a customer. Oh, hey, we've got five customers now. Oh, by the way, we've got another five patents. And oh, by the way, this partnership is working out and kept going. We're about ready for you guys to believe in us and give us your money. And, 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 and the, the, the partner that just tapped me on the shoulder as I was leaving after doing one of these kind of informal exercises and, and said to me, um, you know, don't regret not taking the investment to accelerate this in the future. I know there is a lot to be said for organic and I know you're getting a kick out of it kind of thing. But imagine in five years time going, we really had an opportunity in our hands and we let it slip because we weren't we weren't really willing to take the investment and, and have that accelerated it growth. And I kind of thought about that on the plane back from London to Stockholm and and kind of realized, yeah, they're right. You know, this is our time. This is the way to do it. And, um, you know, what's what's stopping us here is is the ability to grow out the team and add those features we need and to put sales and marketing coverage where we need it. Uh, it you know, it's the right thing to do. 
And I think I was back pitching to them the following Tuesday, and and you know the rest is is their investment, and and subsequently, uh, we raised more money in in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's just not to miss the window of opportunity. It's not infinite, uh, and sometimes, and you know, quite often, by the way, the mechanics of these things work. Uh, you need to get that growth, and you know, in in hindsight as well. I'm not sure some of our customers would have been as interested in us if we hadn't got to a certain size and scale. You know, they're not that interested in, and and some of them, for for very valid reasons, need to see a company with with solid backing and that they know if they adopt and use and put a lot of time and energy into deploying the technology, that the company's going to be there in two, three, four, five years time, and and a lot of that had to come with the with the quality of uh, the support we've had. Um, and, and you don't see those things at the beginning and, and in hindsight, they've, they've been very instrumental in us getting to where we are. I think that's really helpful advice. You know, it can be it can be a little bit scary. I think taking money and like you say, working with somebody for a very long period of time, worrying about that loss of control. Um, and sometimes people are focused on sort of, you know, next funding round or, you know, where they, where they get to like that rather than success. But I think it's... Um, I think it is a really difficult uh, decision to make and to make it at the right time. Um, just to pick on a word you use there, I, I don't see it. And in practice, it's not really a loss of control. Uh, it's just augmenting your team with people with different and more skills as well. You know, I mean, they have this classic and it's all business theory 101, you know, hire people better than you and you don't have to work kind of thing. It's, <laughs> it's you know, um, uh, you know, learn to hire and delegate and stuff. Well, that's what you're doing when you're bringing in. You're not just bringing in uh, in money. You know, you're bringing in a lot of very quality expertise in 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 what happens next and everything. And I have to say, um, our our investors have been more than generous with their their beyond the money part of it all, um, and certainly have been. Um, you know, in, in many aspects, from from their network to getting us uh, customers, from their network to getting us a uh, team. Uh, from their experience and guidance for, you know, we we five decisions to make and, you know, quite often they've seen all of those decisions before and can give you a pretty good guidance on, on what worked and doesn't. Uh, but ultimately, you are still responsible and, and it's it's about digesting that advice. But I, I haven't to date had anybody, you know, kind of take control and insist on something that you weren't comfortable about. It's it's about getting people who are, who are going to work with you. And that's part of that process, you know. I mean, you know, in theory, you hate pick who is investing you maybe not everybody has that freedom but uh, but your instincts there you know you you are going to work with these people it's like a job interview it goes both ways you're not necessarily just begging for the job you're also wondering whether these are the people i'm going to work with similar happens with investment you kind of get a good feel and as i said the money just doesn't come in the you know pitch and here's a check there's a lot of workshopping there's a lot of personal connections and chemistry has to happen and uh, you kind of come out the other side going yeah i think we're going to work well with these people and you do like a you do like a like a job interview. You'll get references checked, and uh, you know you'll have a good long think about it as well. So it's it's not all about the check. No, well, I think that's I think that's really helpful advice. Would you say that that advice that they gave you around you know don't regret not taking the investment? Do you think that's the most useful advice you've been given, or is there is there something else? <laughs> no, I've I've had a few uh, I've had a few things in the back of my head from other people that are not necessarily on this journey that I, that I roll out every so often. 
um, you know, words of wisdom from people with a, a lot more experience than me that that uh, have proven very useful. Um, but but uh, on the investor side, no, it, it, it's it's not the best advice or the only good advice I've got from them by any means. Um, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would think we have presented um, options and uh, you know, hey, we could do A, B, or C, being go to market in hiring strategy or whatever. Um, and you know, and you've kind of got the tap on the shoulder saying, yeah, I think that went through a little bit more, or, or have you thought through the consequences? And so it's that extra wall to bounce stuff on that 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 has been useful. Uh, also, you know, and it's a little bit egotistical to say that the CEO's job is a little bit lonely sometimes. Uh, having peer companies, so the portfolio companies of the investors, have also been great. Uh, to go to for advice um, or, you know, I've seen you've tackled this problem, you're further down the road than we are. How did you go about it? And so it's quite often, uh, you know, the, the, the venture, the investors we have have forums and meetings and kind of get togethers for uh, the peers. So I know my, my CFO uh, has great help from his peers in the other portfolio companies about uh, about issues that only he has a problem with. So, you know, we don't have 10 CFOs, we've one, and, and, and if he does need help, and lots of it's legal advice, some of it's, it's uh, you know, strategy, and, and, and all that's there uh, as part of the network that comes with the, the, the venture guys as well. Now, this isn't your first startup, so um, are there any similarities between the businesses you've you've been in before? You know, is there anything about that journey that's always the same, in your opinion? Um, there's way more similarities than there are differences. In fact, the amount of times I have deja vu feelings is, is unbelievable. <laughs> it really is. I go... This is the, but what it is is that we're and and that's not that my particular journeys and and I've been involved in a handful of things, um, two major ones that would be you know the principal in, but even before that I was around the kind of startup or what would be called startups nowadays in, in a couple of guises and 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 there's similar uh, stages of all this so we're we're, we're all traveling, uh, well trodden paths. Um, uh, and there has been great attempts to document this. There's some, you know, there's some uh, uh, inspirational, you know, uh, people who've, who've done this journey quite a few times. But you, you kind of see that there's a pattern to this um, and, and the journeys are the same. But 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 on my own specific, yeah, um, you know, from taking an idea on a whiteboard in Sweden and taking it out to California and growing out a team, um, you know, I've been there, done that. And you know, kind of pulling out the playbook and doing it again. And, and of course, you're learning from experience. And, and you know, I think we're quite naive the first time we did it. And, and this time we're doing it, we're doing it a, a little bit more gray hair or less hair and, and a little bit more wisdom, I think. Now, one of the things that, you know, I see is an issue time and time again is getting the right people around you. So how do you go about that, sort of getting the right people to come and work for you? Um, it is critical it really is uh, crucial to get the right people um you don't have many chances to make mistakes um you know when you're at the 10 people eight people 10 people 12 people stage you only have one you know kind of chief data scientist you've only one marketing person you've only one salesperson quite often and if it's not right you know you can absolutely cripple or set back the company quite a lot so i just can't emphasize how important it is um and there's a couple of ways uh, one is there's quite a few 
of my previous team in this team is that you put the band back together. If you got a team that works together, you know, respects each other, compliments each other, has iron, ironed out all the creases, that kind of stuff. That's that's great. And and so, you know, um, yeah, yeah, bringing the band back together is a great start. Um, and actually, and the investors love that as well. There's one thing I've noticed is um, investors don't necessarily invest in individuals. They invest in successful teams. They're, they genuinely look like people going to the race course and picking up the form book. And they don't just look at the five horses in the race and say, I like the color of that one. They are going to form. Have they done it before? Have they done it in these circumstances? You know, and things like a team that's gelled together and has successfully worked together is a great indicator that you're going to have success and this thing is going to work out. So that that um, and that moves on as well when you're hiring. Um, you know, if I look at my team now, quite a few of them have worked together. Somebody who comes in and shows that they are a person of stature and that you believe in and, uh, you know, works out quite well. When somebody like that turns around and says, I know somebody, you know, that that's nearly the interview in a box. You you, you know, a, a winning team that's worked together successfully and somebody's willing to bring a friend or a professional friend or, or a genuine friend into the team is is a great indicator that this stuff's going to work uh, and work well together as well so we, i've noticed that we've got little pods of people who worked successfully together before and um that's that's one of the best ways i think of bringing in people um you know and then the open hiring and the other thing we, we've seated the team um in the r d lab we're we're associated with the university we're in the science park next door we foster uh, research projects so that we, we've just had a couple of master's students do their research thesis with us um, most of the team there have moved through that stage of the academic world doing work with us and, and you know they're, they're the ones who, who like what we do and want to continue it and also the ones that we want to pull in and uh, that's been a great source of, of good people as well that's a little bit of a try before you buy type of, of, of a mechanism um, but uh, you know it's been good does that make it hard if things aren't working out or have you always been lucky in that regard? Um, we've had very little churn, actually. Um, there's natural stuff, you know, people, you know, packing up and moving for personal reasons and uh, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, but uh, we wouldn't be a great company to, to, to look at and see, you know, so people executing in, in troubled environments like that. So we've been pretty lucky, um, I think. Um, you know, and then I looked at California, particularly where famously the retention rates are so low because of the opportunities in front of everybody. Uh, and I'm pretty proud of the fact that we pretty much have everybody who's joined us has stayed. Um, it's, it's a bit of a badge of honor, actually, that we, we have this environment. Um, some may say a little bit utopian, um, you know, given the technology we're working on and the size of the team, and the fact that we're funded and the fact that we're selling internationally and people have moved between locations and stuff. It's, it's quite a cool environment to work in, I, I would think. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of biased on that. Well, it sounds like you're doing something right if uh, if that's working. So <laughs> now we're um, we're obviously locked up at home at the moment or we are over here in the U.S. So what is um, what is the current pandemic doing to, to you as a business? Is it having an impact at all? Um, it is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be. I, I'd be completely naive and, and, and uh, to say that at a macro level, 
you know the whole world is changing and 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 you know the whole world's in flux and uh i would think just like on a personal level the advice to anybody is don't make any big decisions at this time uh, i think that kind of stretches out as well into the professional world that uh, you know don't make any big decisions at this time <laughs> would would be there um however you know we're not selling into the aviation industry we're not selling into the hospitality sector we're not selling we're selling you know security to the fintech center uh, our, our, our sector and most of our customers have been around for you know decades if not hundreds of years um, and weathered many storms uh, when we did a stress test and went line by line at the the current customers, the current active potential customers and the kind of pipeline, we were able to make a pretty good solid judgment that, you know, there'll be minor delays, but nothing fatal in most of them, which is which is great. And then if you think what we're doing, like we're selling into people who are offering online services and digital transformation, you know, my gut feeling is, is that it'll even be a bigger push into these things um, at the other side of all this. Um, and then secondly, we help in what I would call the the uh, distributed workforce. We, you know, in the enterprise use case of people using our technology, uh, we're helping uh, in the multi-factor authentication world. We're a great extra factor where we, we provide a factor that has great user experience uh, and are successfully getting that out to the ecosystems around MFA. Uh, we think that'll even be more and so, you know, we're kind of accidentally playing into the strong part of what we do. So let's talk a little bit about the the industry and some of the trends that you're seeing as well. So we've talked, you know, obviously the company is around making security kind of seamless for, for the user. Um, do you think that people understand why security is important to their transformation projects these days? Um. Yes and no. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, designing a new high, you know, cool user interface, uh, you know, modern look of uh, a financial services thing, you know, back in the day, it looked like a checkbook. And now it looks like, the, you know, it looks like uh, it looks like somebody playing Angry Birds, you know, it's it, <laughs> It's a completely different world, right? They would love if the security element wasn't there. You know, the fact that you go, oh, stop, I got to do this thing. Where's the message? Oh, there's a funny number. How do I remember it? I got it wrong. I got it wrong. Nobody wants that. So that whole, it's in the way. People, you know, don't wake up in the morning and go, I'd love to use some security today. You know, they want to play, you know, the, the latest game or, or, or get on and get onto the social media stuff and do their thing. It, it, security isn't what the consumer really wants to be involved in. Quite often, and particularly when then you get into somebody's money and, and financial services, they expect the banks to be looking after their assets. You know, they don't feel it's something they themselves should be going to. You don't go off to uh, Best Buy or PC World or whatever and, and buy the latest security software protecting your banking assets or your social media access. You're expecting to that to come as part of the package and part of it. Uh, in fact, the 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 you know the 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 least amount of security frustration and confusion and responsibility, uh, the better. You know, my my mum doesn't certainly doesn't want to need to look up the expiry date of a of a PKI digital certificate. I mean, it's not really what people want to do. 
uh, it is in the hand of you know what would be our customers, the banks, to run and operate and manage this stuff and take responsibility. Uh, and so kind of technologies like ours are putting that responsibility back in the hands of the people who understand it uh, and have the responsibility, as I said, and, and, uh, and can look after it. Uh, so that's kind of the trend is to take away the security from in your face at the consumer and put it back in the hands of the specialists. And, and we're part of that wave. Um, yeah. And what do you think we're going to see coming through from the industry over the next couple of years? Oh, I'm not going on the record uh, predicting <laughs> technology, uh, particularly security technology. Um, you know, that's that's uh, anybody who does anybody who has that crystal ball. I'd love to have a chat with them. But but actually, no, I think the macro trend of um, uh, uh, risk based security so it's not one size fits all. It's not this super safe that is suitable for Fort Knox, nuclear secrets, and me buying a cup of coffee in Starbucks. That's not really how it'll work. It's more, let's look at the situation. Let's make a real time judgment about what needs to happen here. And if you need that safe, let's pull it out. But if you don't, if you can say it's Starbucks, all they're buying is a coffee, it's only $5, you know, let's just go with this. Like you're probably seeing with your your touch cards and, and and your apps just pinging and going without being challenged for security, because in the background there is this real time risk analysis being made. I think that will propagate further out in lots of aspects, and you know maybe in a couple of years we'll go, oh yeah, remember that time we used to be bothered for passwords and bothered for security, and I used to have to cut and paste an SMS from one app into another. You know that's all going to go by the by because the user experience and the, the, the ability to do you know, real-time judgments is there. No, I, think, I think that's really interesting, a really interesting idea that maybe, you know, we're seeing that passwords are, you know, not secure and, you know, people forget them or write them down or use the same one everywhere, which then just makes that, you know, not secure at all. So can we move yeah. away from that and have, have something else that comes through, whatever that is? I, th I think the root of it is actually it's not the passwords themselves, the PIN numbers themselves. It's the, it's the management of it and the inconsistency of those policies. Uh, this one I had a capital letter on. That one I had to have a number on. This one I said I change it every four weeks. This one says that I've got to change it if I've used it before. All that's the frustration. That that kind of just absolutely made up stuff that doesn't really make it more secure because as you said somebody's going to pick up a pen write it down and stick it in a in a file called passwords uh, on their phone and you know and and it all disappears then so i think the responsibility on the industry is to get the security up uh, and to make it that the end user is not going to be part of the problem and i think you made another really interesting point as well you know companies seem to be at least having a conversation, if not accepting, you know, what is our level of risk? You know, we, if we can't secure everything to 100%, what level of risk can we accept and where is the balance? Do, do you think that's right? Yes, yes to a point. I mean, you know, we'd all like to think that there is these silver bullets we're deploying and that you're going way beyond, you know, any level of risk at all. And then in certain environments, and we've done stuff in around, I did a project a number of years ago in the DoD in, 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 in Washington and, you know, we were saying, hey, we believe the user should be challenged kind of once a day. And this guy in a uniform stood up and told me he, he, he'd challenge the user for a password every five minutes if he felt like it. You know, that that, that environment could accept 
the absolute frustration and complexity and expense of high-end security because it was so important to them. You know, however, I'm sure Starbucks are willing to let a, a cup of coffee go every day if it meant that uh, they got more customers using the system because there wasn't security there. You know, so there's a, a balance there. It all depends on the on the domain. Um, security, there's 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 an analogy, um, maybe overused and and possibly not adding any wisdom here, but it, it is the bicycle lock analogy, where a you know, the, the cost of the bicycle lock generally doesn't outweigh the bike it's protecting. You know, if you you go if you go off and spend 200 bucks on a bicycle lock and you're sticking it on, you know, a child's, you know, $50 bicycle, you're kind of getting things out of whack. Um, but also the, the, the thing about a bicycle lock, quite often what you're doing is you're not saying that the bicycle lock can't be broken. Clearly it can. There are mechanisms, uh, but they're expensive. They're dangerous. They're frustration. Um what you're actually doing is saying, go off and figure out some other way or some other bicycle to steal. You're, you're pushing the problem away. Uh, and, 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 and that, I think, is what um, um, a lot of security is, that they're not, not willing to take risk, per se, is just to find the appropriate levels of security for the problem uh, that they've got and, and to go and, and, and make it not this, this the digital path as the method of, of coming in and, 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 and taking the asset. Now, we hear a lot about how, you know, there's a crowded space for security vendors these days. Um, how do you think people can get the attention of the CISO or what is it that you're seeing that, that matters to them that means you're getting their attention? Um, they're very influenced, I think. Let me say, they're very risk-averse people and that's understandable. Very few want to be on the old at nine version of something or the beta version of something, you know. You know that while they, while they kind of want to be early adopters in concept to new ideas and 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 to be one, you know, to know the industry, and know where things are going. Uh, quite often, the decision to purchase and go into production uh, is is a big, big one, a big, big cost and. I think the best thing for us nowadays is the scale and quality of the references and the kind of external validation, be it the analysts uh, and our existing customers showing they're getting value in production and referencing. And that is the easiest thing to help us get the CISOs top of mind is that if, if it's been used by these, these kind of discerning people, um and they're they're willing to and and have shown that they're getting value but also that they're proud of it and and, and willing to go on the record for it uh, is the best thing uh, for us that's that that's clearly uh, the the best one but you know it's a tough se sector to sell into people are uh, skeptical um to to the innovative ideas uh, for, for for a reason because they're just afraid of introducing more risk to themselves so what comes next for, for you and the company? Um, I'd like to think that we have been in pioneering this and we are the ones out there uh, uh, first and with, uh, you know, and evidently uh, quite a few people now uh, getting into the sector as, as, as it got uh, um, kind of gone mainstream. Uh, and I think we're at that point or at the other side of that point uh, in the last uh, year or so where people are not looking at this idea of behavioral biometrics as an intriguing thing and maybe suitable for other people, but now seeing it as mainstream and suitable for all, that we're at that point of um, 
you know, our customers are coming in. They're not curious about the idea anymore. They're they're more curious about what it means for them and the execution of it. So there's very different conversations we're having. Uh, and I think what's next for the company is actually a lot more push out of the fintech world uh, and into this more instead of the CIAM, the consumer uh, identity and access management that we've been very successful in. I think we're going to see an awful lot more in the um, pure identity and access management where this usability comes into the enterprise as well. So I think they'll, you know, we're we, we're betting on um, uh, a lot of business and a lot of an explosion in this multi-factor, particularly for the distributed workforce, and that that the behavioral is is considered one of the key ones there for for a whole bunch of reasons that I've outlined before. But but usability and and the strength of security uh, being part of it, that's where I think we're going to be is uh, a lot more in the security ecosystems than we were before a lot of uh, working with partners than we were before where whereas to date we've been in a lot of direct selling to big logos i think our next phase is uh, you know a lot more in the in the ecosystem world brilliant well we end each podcast with uh, 10 quick fire questions so um, i need you to answer the first thing that comes into your head are you ready Okay, shoot. <laughs> what turns you on professionally? Uh, I love the I love somebody who works really, really hard and is really proven true their thoughts that they're not just uh, pontificating, but that there's actually a lot of substance and work behind it. Um, and and you know that, that that I engage with and that I really enjoy. What turns you off professionally? Actually, well, you know, I've kind of said it. The uh, the people who are, you know, just using buzzwords or uh, kind of MBO speak to just make a point. But then when you question it, you realize that there's no substance underneath it, that they're kind of really just relaying what sounded good from somebody else. How do you unwind? Um, I ride adventure motorcycles. And so nothing uh, uh, look forward to a long few days driving through northern Sweden and into Norway uh, this summer. Um, I've spent last year in most of California. Um, and, and so putting a helmet on and getting away from a screen and, and getting out in the motorcycle is, is uh, uh, quite a, it mightn't sound like unwinding because it can be quite a thrill, but uh, I find it very, very relaxing. What profession other than your own would you like to try? <laughs> uh, interesting. I had this conversation at the table the other day. Um, I was um, I'm doing a bit of DIY in this downtime, um, and I fancy my hand at a few things. I I hate doing plumbing and water, but I do like electrics and that kind of thing. And I said I said if if all this you know computer stuff doesn't work out because of the pandemic, you know I I could always be an electrician. And my daughter said, can you send me an invitation to your funeral? (laughs) (laughs) She she doesn't have the same uh, belief or confidence I have in in doing these things. No faith. (laughs) (laughs) What activity gives you the most energy? Um... Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I am wine doing the motorcycle stuff. Um, I, I have some memorable trips over the last while, and and I come back inspired. My, my CFO told me 
I, I surprised him by saying I was going on a three-day trip before quite a crucial board meeting recently, and I came back full of ideas and all fired up. And and uh, he said he thinks the company should pay me to go off for a few days before the board meetings. I come back so much better. So I think uh, <laughs> maybe maybe the roots uh, there's something behind that. Who is your biggest inspiration? Um. Oh, this is going to sound very cliched, but and I know it's on the back of a lot of things that just happened recently, but they didn't happen for a reason. But uh, there's no doubt that Bill Gates, uh, for someone like me, you know, my, my background is, is I'm an engineer. I have a PhD in cryptography. I've been following this industry for nearly 30 years. Uh, Bill Gates has been around this forever. And then just to see what he's done, not just recently, but what he's done over the last while. Uh, Microsoft's an awesome company. Um, a, he's a technologist inside there. Some of their products and technologies are just some of the best pieces of software ever made. Uh, though I'm sure people wrestling with Excel now and again wouldn't agree, but 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 it changed everything. Um, and then look, you know, look what he's done, not just in this pandemic, but prior to this, and how he carries himself and the wisdom there. I mean, he's 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 such an inspiration. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Oh, I, I bore the hell out of my team with the classic cross and the chasm stuff. So if somebody, you know, wants me to talk about uh, in the business world uh, about commercialization and that I just fall back to that pattern of, uh, you know, it was one of the only business books I've ever read. And it described perfectly what you see on the ground as a practitioner. And I get across that thing as guys, you, you know, we don't have to invent the solution to this problem. It's been done before. Let's pull out the textbook. And and, and I can speak on that uh, and enjoy doing it as well. And I think I've seen quite a few people where the penny drops and goes, oh, yeah, you know, we're not alone. This isn't the problem that we have to solve uniquely. There is a, an ability to go off and find the best practices and ask other people how they've done it before. So I speak on that. Uh, I do have a nerdy amount of uh, records and I've been at a bazillion shows and I can bore the hell out of people talking about uh, music and uh, you know its evolution and, and the various things I've been at um, but I'm not sure the audience is, is, is as big for that one I don't know maybe <laughs> um, <laughs> you are at your best when you're doing what um I don't know, actually. I'm trying to guess what somebody else would say about it. Um, but I think a little, it is a little bit of pontificating about technology. Um, I'm um, probably in the CTO side of a CEO camp or whatever. And, uh, and I think I'm quite best in that product um, uh, technology kind of evangelizing and, and, and um, strategizing. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Oh my lord! No, that that's um, that's uh, that's that's too big a question. I think for a pop quiz, um, <laughs> and 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 you haven't put a point of Guinness in front of me when I get <laughs> some of that, um, you know. But I might be part of that words that that Luke gave me back in the day is like you just don't don't miss the opportunity by overthinking it. Well, if, if that one was too big for you, then then this one might be. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Oh, wow. Um, 
It's an odd one, and I, 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 and this I definitely like to talk to you over Bainne Guinness about. But um, I'm I'm a I'm a firm believer in karma. Um, just you know, I mean, I've grown up in 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 Western Europe, and people live and operate in a certain way, and you know, I've managed to travel quite a bit and see how it kind of goes. And and for some reason, I, I the one little root thing that comes down to me, I think, is 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 the karma element. Um, that I think if you kind of live with a certain sense of do the right thing. And good things happen to you or whatever. And I'd like if I if I did show up the pearly gates and uh, um, you know Saint Peter's the one who'd, who'd be letting me in, um, that it would be saying, hey, you, you know, you did pretty well overall. All right. Well, next time I'll bring Guinness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Listen, I I've I've uh, really enjoyed the time. Uh, thank you very much for for considering us and inviting us in and and uh, for your time um, this afternoon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.